Hello and welcome to the LGBT Family and Games Community Podcast. My name is James, and today I am joined by the usual suspect, Hella. Hella, hello. it's a podcast. You have to say hello. I just said hello. You took forever. I was posing. Okay. So for everybody who's listening, Hella was posing instead of saying hi. <laughs> I said hi. Okay. Took a bit. Took a bit. Uh, and we're also joined by a special guest this week, Chad Peavy. Chad is a best-selling author, award-winning speaker on the topic of human behavior, and founder of the Institute for Human Progress and Development. He has worked with thousands of highly performing professionals from around the world, helping them achieve greater clarity, if I could speak clearly, it would help, perspective, and overall well-being. With a master's degree from the University of Texas, Austin, Hook'em Horns, founder of the Austin Pride Foundation, founder of the PS Foundation for the Arts, director of marketing for the world's largest real estate company, and coach to business owners, he is widely respected by highly achieving professionals the world over. And he is joining us on our crazy podcast this week to talk about whatever we want to talk about. So welcome, Chad. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And I enjoy crazy. <laughs> And just so everyone knows, the pose was wonderful. It was it was dainty and lovely. Thank you. So I, I appreciated the yeah, pose. Yeah, I just I, I give Hella the appreciation. a hard time. <laughs> I love giving Hella a hard time because they take it so well. <laughs> We've mm. also known each other for years now. So Yeah. Yeah, a few actually. It's 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 good to have those friends. Yeah. Well, get rid of me. Those friends are important. Chad, aside from, you know, kind of this boilerplate that I read off, that yeah. doesn't include anything about your background. I know I read a little bit more about your background growing up, but if you could just give our listeners an idea of kind of where you come from and what part of LGBT you belong to and how that's impacted your life story. Yeah, of course. I, I love that you shared the highlight reel, <laughs> but it wasn't always that way. Yeah. That that all happened in spite of the upbringing that I had growing up a gay kid in rural Arkansas, which is not exactly gay Mecca, a town when I was there it was about 2,500 people. There were two stoplights. Uh, the big thing was, you know, Friday night football. So that's the environment that I grew up in. Uh, I didn't meet an openly gay person until I went to college. So I was feeling really alone and really scared and not knowing what's going on with my life. My, my parents had me in church every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. Oh, wow. My dad was not a great role model for me. There was a lot of physical and emotional abuse that I grew up with. And so I have, I'm the person that was living with a lot of emotional uh, consequences of that kind of upbringing. And so the highlight reel that you opened up with there it didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen easily for me. It happened in spite of a whole lot of nastiness that I grew up in. And I'm, I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that and, and to be here with you today to talk about yeah. it. So what, I mean, what was it like growing up? So you said you, you hadn't met an openly gay person until you got into college, mm -hmm. but you know, did, what were your feelings? Were you, did you notice something was different early on? I knew when I was about five years old that I was different. Okay. I wasn't able, gay was not in my vocabulary, but I knew that I was not like the other boys at school. I, I just knew that I was different and separate from, that was the feeling. 
and this is back in the 80s. So yep. this is before Will and Grace. This is before we had a low, any you know role models on TV. And to be honest, had those role models existed for me even back then, there's no way that my dad would have allowed me to watch that. That would have never been allowed into my house. So that was that was challenging. And I developed a set of survival skills that helped me not get beat up, that helped me fly under the radar, that helped me not get noticed, that helped me conform to everything that was around me. I was the kid at school that could sit at any lunch table in the cafeteria, and I would turn into whatever I needed to turn into in that moment so that I could go unbeat up, unbullied, fit in with the the crowd. I did what every gay boy does in the South in high school. I got a girlfriend, knowing that I found her brother more attractive than her. She's okay. She's a she's a wonderful woman. Turned out to be an OGBYN and has a, a husband and, and beautiful kids, and her life turned out great. But she protected me. And having a girlfriend, if you had a girlfriend, there's no way they could call you the names that they were calling me. And so I did a whole lot of adapting and adjusting and becoming a chameleon and becoming what other people expected of me just to fit in and fly under the radar and survive when it came to my sexuality and who I really was. So how does that like contrast now with what I guess you're seeing? Cause I know like, for example, my experience, I was able to come out in the latter part of my high school years. Mm. It was still not great times for that. It was very early two thousands and there were still some bigots. And I was in the South as well. I was in Texas, actually Cedar park, just North, just okay. North of round rock. Right. I lived in Austin for almost 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, speaking of Austin, I really loved the Spider House Cafe and Toy Joy and some of the other little mm, hidden yeah, gems. I think I heard that Spider House closed, which is so sad. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. But uh, anyway, very cool spot. I digress. Anyway, it, yeah. You know, it for me, it was an experience of not you. You really you, you could be open about it, but you ran the risk of, like you said, the name calling and um, just the harassment on a regular basis. And nowadays, mm-hmm. I feel like. You know, people can mostly come out, I think, if you're in the United States and you might get a little bit of that, but it's not at the same, same level. So it's, well, we just have a lot more representation. I mean, people, you know, people like you all are doing shows like this. There are other ways that people can see what gay looks like that it's not always what's represented in mainstream media. For me growing up, especially in church, you know, you could be forgiven for being a murderer, but to be gay was like the worst thing in the world that you could possibly be. And now I think that that message is a little harder to sell Yeah, because you just were, we are everywhere and we are out and we are living lives that um, are healthy and productive. And it's, I think it's more difficult to sell a message of hate, even though they try, it's more difficult to sell that message to someone that's young and coming up in the world and going, Oh, that I, I identify with that. I see that. And I think that's all a good thing. Yeah. So let's talk about, cause your book, I think probably ties into this a little bit, the break and untangled Talk to us about your book. What is it about? What can readers take away from that? Yeah, so the book is a journey that I, it's my journey of basically those survival 
instincts, those survival methods that I developed as a young kid growing up that kept me safe. It was those same survival skills that sabotaged me as an adult. You can't keep yourself small. You have to have meaning other than coming out. You, you have to live for something other than coming out. You have to understand how to approach your ambition. You have to understand, you know, you, we deserve to live a life that leaves a legacy. So there are 12 different chapters in the book, and they are 12 different mindsets. And each of those mindsets are mindsets that I had to confront and overcome as I got out of Arkansas and came into my own as a young adult. They were just things that I had to work on. And so it's, it's in some ways, it is a reminder for me because I, I write to fellow travelers. I'm not writing it as someone who is coming from on high that's saying, look at me, I made yeah. it. I'm writing it as someone who's on the path. And I admit that there are times that I still deal with anxiety and depression and loneliness, those emotional consequences that come from growing up in that kind of an environment. And I needed something to remind me of what to do when. And so I'm able to go to any one of those chapters in my book. There are exercises in each chapter of the book that help me navigate my way through whatever it is that I'm going through at the time. And that for me, I mean, the book was a, uh, something that I wanted to give, but it's also something that I needed to write as a reminder for myself. And that's, that's what the book is about. Okay. So what is the process like, and I'm throwing you a curveball, but what, what is the process like putting all those thoughts down into something that becomes a book? Really hard. <laughs> that's what the process is like. It's really hard. I have been, I started seeing the school counselor when I was about, see, I was probably in, I was in fourth grade and they started putting me with the school counselor. They realized that I, I don't ever remember hearing the word depression just that I was sad a lot. And so I started seeing the school counselor in fourth grade and I've been in therapy and out of therapy most of my life since then. And I've done individual and group and couples and everything in between. And a lot of what I did in the book was very cathartic in that I was writing the book. I knew what I, I knew what I wanted to get out, but there were a lot of times that I questioned where, where did this belief, where did this mindset, where did this idea really come from? Who gave it to me? And then I would have to, you know, and is it true? Did I just make this up? Did this really happen? And so there was a lot of going back to family members and figuring out what actually happened to me as a kid. And then there was a lot of going back to my therapist and making sense of what it was that I was writing about and being able to take this sort of tumbleweed of emotions and ideas and ironing that out so that it made sense for the reader to be able to get to a place uh, where I was going and be able to make sense of what I was talking about in these stories and these mindset methods that I'm talking about. So it took me about four years to write the book. Oh, wow. It was it was four years of very difficult and intense therapy and very difficult uh, writing. I think I had about, hmm, I want to say six editors for my book. Okay. The first one fired me because it was such a jumbled mess. I remember being so proud and posting this picture on Instagram. Like I've got everything, you know, I've got the book. And he looked at it and he goes, no, 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 no. You're, you're nowhere close. You need to go away and come back. Like, oh goodness. <laughs> it's like, oh, geez. So that, that was the process. It was, it was long and it was hard. It was difficult, but in the end it was worth it. Glad to hear. 
And now you're doing um, yeah. conferences as well, right? You just got got back from one. Was that was that in Cali, California? It was in San Francisco. Okay. Yep. I I hosted a gay men's forum, uh, and the gay men's forum was for gay men who wanted to create a different kind of life, one that was free of other people's expectations and other people's ideas of who they should be and what they should be, who wanted to leave behind their past, who wanted to break out of this, what I call a self-constructed prison. And so we did a whole lot of breaking down these beliefs and ideas that were holding them back from creating the life that they really wanted for themselves. And I think one of the most difficult quest, two of the most difficult questions we ever ask ourselves is in this human experience is who am I? And the second one is what do I want? And in this three-day workshop, we really dive into who are you absent the expectations, absent the ideas of who you ought to be, and what do you really want? If you got to create your life, what would that look like? And it's actually much more difficult than it sounds. And we spend a very emotional three days together and we are laughing and we are crying and we are angry and we are doing all of the emotional parts of the roller coaster. It was a really beautiful and impactful experience though. And on, I should tell you this, when they come into the event, they don't get to use their real name they're not allowed to introduce themselves as their real name. And the reason I do that is because our names are just something else that is given to us, that we're thrown into, that we inherit. And I want them to think about that idea that we are thrown into the world. We're thrown in, we're, we're not, we don't get to choose when in time we come here or where, or our parents or our socioeconomic status. We don't get to choose if we're gay or straight or otherwise. We don't get to choose even our name. And yet we spend most of our lives trying to make sense of all the things that we were just thrown into that we never chose. And so on the third day of the event, of, of the event we have this little ceremony and I took him out to the beach at Land's End. And we're looking out at the ocean and the Golden Gate Bridge is out there. And we, they reclaim their name because it's something, if, if it's something they want to reclaim and choose, they declare their name. They take, I take a, I took a burn bucket out there <laughs> and they write down all of the nonsense that they've been carrying around for many years in their life that they're tired of carrying around. And we burn those things symbolically in the bucket. And then they, there's an exercise that they did called their declarations and it's who they're creating and who they're becoming. And they declare that. And it, uh, it's their second coming out, uh, coming out as who they really are this time at this time in their life. And it was really, really beautiful and really impactful. So I imagine, cause a lot of what you're talking about sounds very cathartic, but I imagine that can be somewhat challenging with a group of men. Right, because society mm-hmm. tells us you have to act a certain way. You can't cry. You have to be macho, et cetera, et cetera. So, and you said it was a very emotional experience. They all cried. They all cried. They all cried. Wow. Yes, every single one cried. It was great. You know what I found? I found the opposite, James. I found that. I mean, even so, the night before we started, I had like a this little meet and greet mixer for them. And I was there and they came in and it was, um, it was surprising to me because I, they were so tensed up 
And when they knew they had someone there to listen to them, it was like the release valve opened just a little bit and they were ready to go the night before to the point that I was like, hold that thought, please, until tomorrow. You know, let's not have this one hour conversation right now. So I, I found just the opposite. I found them ready to work, ready to go and willing to open up and to do it in a group of people that can relate really hard to their experience and have other men in the room say, yeah, I, I have felt that too, gave them even more permission to keep going and keep doing and keep digging. So that was my experience with it. Yeah. So are, are the, the participants in the conference, are they primarily professionals that are looking to kind of get different out of their career or just in general in life? Yeah, I would say in general in their life. Okay. As as someone who's done a whole lot of business coaching, if if what's going on in general in your life is not in alignment and things are not operating at a high level there, nothing in your else in your life including your career is going to go very well. So if you can clean that up and by cleaning it up, you know, one one of the guys in the session said you know, I'm wanting to get to where you are. And that really struck me because I thought, well, I'm a mess, you know, <laughs> like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, let me be very clear about where I am. You know, I am a fellow traveler who has figured out a few things that work. I have figured out this thing called self-awareness. I'm able to call out my own BS. I'm able to recognize that when I'm feeling depressed and I just want to go to bed or I'm feeling anxious and my skin is crawling, I have figured out how to identify that and move through it anyway. That's the only difference between you and me. So whether they were there to work on their career or the next phase of their life or something that was going on with their family, it was all about just a deep sense of awareness about the games that they're playing to keep themselves stuck and some methods and ideas about how to move themselves forward. So so that to it to be to answer your question more directly, there was a range of folks that were looking for different outcomes, but the path there was the same. So, and you've you've touched on anxiety and depression, and I think that's something a lot of people in the LGBT community can relate to, not just gay men. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of just high level thirty thousand foot view tips do you have for you know maybe a, a young gay or you know young lesbian that is experiencing those feelings? What kind of advice would you have? Yeah. Yeah. I before I before I go on to that, I do want to say that I am hosting another oh. one of these events and it's called The Second Coming Out. And it is not just for gay men, but for anyone in our community. BTQ plus, anyone is welcome at this one. It will be for everybody. It's happening in Austin. And so if you're interested, be sure to check out my website and look for the second coming out program to see where it is going to be next. And we'll make sure Depression, to, like we'll I make s- sure to post the link, by the way. It'll it'll be oh, in the description thanks, of the, the, the podcast. I appreciate that. And while you're there, anybody that's listening to this, while you're in the show notes, you can have a free copy of my book um, just by going to my website. And if James, you'll include that, it's right there on the homepage. You can download a free copy of my book, not just a chapter, but the whole thing. So that's available to you as well. So I have dealt with depression for just about as long as I can remember. And if I were talking to my younger self, 
I would want that kid to know what depression is. I think that I was given a disservice when people just start trying to treat it and not explaining to me what's going on and what's creating it. So they gave me, you know, they put me with the school counselor. When I was in high school, they started me on antidepressants. And even still today, that makes me furious that instead of getting to the core of the depression, that I was just like, they, they threw a pill at me. That still makes me very, very angry. Freud, I think, had the best definition of depression I've ever heard. At least the one that relates to me the most. Freud said, depression is rage turned inward. Rage turned inward. And when I was a kid, seeing the school counselor, there was a lot of talk about me being sad. I wasn't sad. I was so angry. So, so angry. That this world was not set up for me. That I was so different. That my dad was who he was, that my mom wasn't protecting me, that I didn't fit in at school, that I knew that if they found out who I really was, that they would pick on me even worse. And so I had a lot to be mad at, but I had no healthy ways to direct that anger in an appropriate way and in the correct direction. Instead, all of that anger gets turned back on me. Why am I this way? Why am I here? Why can't I just be different? And so all of it gets turned inward. And when all that rage gets turned inward, we experience what we know as depression. And my depression sends me to the bed, usually. Uh, I don't want to function at all. I just want to go sleep. Uh, I withdraw from other people. Asking for help is the last thing in the world that I'm going to do when when I start feeling depressed. And so I, I would say to my younger self, it's not about the depression is, is anger. The depression is rage. Work on that. Find healthy ways, healthy outlets for the rage directed in the appropriate way and in the appropriate direction. And a lot of times for me, that was talking about the anger. So one of the things that we did at the, that we'll do at the second coming out program that we did at this game men's forum that I hosted, we use this technique that I, I call feeling first language. And so anytime we would go to share something that's going on with us, we had to start with the feeling. And we're not accustomed to talking this way. Yeah. Or when we would respond to someone, we had to start feeling first language. So I feel happy, mad, sad, scared, surprised, disgust. Which one is it? Don't get fancy with it. Happy, mad, sad, scared, surprised, disgust. Those are your only options. And I found that in this group I was working with a few weeks ago, the the emotion is very often anger, very often. Our community has a lot to be mad about, but when you, I can identify it and then you can speak directly to it. It has a way of resolving itself. And sometimes that resolution is just I'm sorry. I, she's old. My dog is here. She's tap dancing around. Oh, mine's she's doing just, the same thing. He's right here under the desk. She is an old dog, and I just have to let her go. We, she's deaf and blind. It, so I'm, oh, no, I'm so you're sorry. fine. So when we, <laughs> okay. Like I said, mine's literally so, under my desk walking around. So, uh, uh, and <laughs> Hella's cat's going to meow sometime in the future. Don't jinx it, please. She's been quiet <laughs> all day. 
we'll blame Bailey here for starting it. <laughs> so when you can speak directly to the emotion and you can be with other people that you can join you in that emotion, it's like, again, that release valve, just letting it go. But it's when we bottle it all up and we pretend that it doesn't exist or we put on this facade of, of who others think we should be as a, someone that identifies as LGBT+. Plus. When we become that caricature of what they see on TV and become that, and we're not our authentic selves, we get angry, we get mad, and we get, as a result, depressed. And so it's just really important to have that outlet, be talking about it, be in community with others who are experiencing it, and let it go. That makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, so especially... It helps. <laughs> Yeah. Especially nowadays, I'm, I, I know that there's a lot of people that are, it feels like the whole world is angry at each other Yep, lately. Um, and a lot of people in the LGBT community, especially the T part of the LGBT community, are receiving a lot of, of hate directed towards them. So I'm sure there's a lot of internalization of that yeah. in turn. So. Which is why I think it's so important that we have healthy dialogue around the anger. Yeah. It's so important that we, we get it out. You know, there are certain politicians that I just can't stand <laughs> and, and they get me so angry, but it does mean no good to be angry about it in my head. But when I can talk to friends and vent that anger, it's, it, it lets it go. I think, imp- I think that there is a lot of important work to be done in our community to just, be able to talk, to be able to have a dialogue about our experiences. Our experience, our human experience in this community is so unlike our straight brethren. It's so totally different. And we try to say things like love is love and it's all the same. It is not the same. It is not the same. We have a totally different experience and we've got to start talking to one another about that experience and that difference. Otherwise, why wouldn't you be mad and, and going nuts? I mean, I've, I've certainly been there and still have those days. So it's, it's funny that you, you bring up Love is Love. I don't know if you've seen the movie. I think it's called Bros with Billy, I, I, Billy mm. Eilish. Irish? Eichner. Uh, Billy Eichner. That's it. Is that right? Bill, mm-hmm. The guy who did Billy on the Street. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, it's actually quite funny uh, so far. It's a little over the top. He takes it a little far with the as all gay movies yeah, are. <laughs> it takes a little, little, little far. And, and the funny thing is it's not like over the top in a, in a raunchy sexual way, which is usually what we see with gay movies, or at least my experience has been with gay movies. Mm. It's kind of like over the top of, as a caricature of like an angry, uh, angry gay man. <laughs> he plays a, a character that's kind of angry at the world. Um, but in the movie, he's asked to do a, like a rom-com, a gay rom-com so that straight people can relate to it. And he's like, the experience is entirely different. And the guy's like, well, I thought, you know, it's love is love. And he's like, it's not love is love. It's completely different. It's a completely different Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And if you think that the, the, the straight man is going to relate to a hookup on grinder, then you have another thing coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally different experience. (laughs) Completely. You know, it, it's so interesting and it's, it, it is an experience that I think matures yeah. 
And I think that's why it's so important that we talk about it. And I, sort of a side note, some of the people that I, that I work with uh, in their sixties just came out and, you know, the way they show up in the world as a, as, as their true selves now in their sixties, it's like, you're talking to a 13 year old. Yeah. I can see that. Like it, all of a sudden they're a, they're a teenager again, you know? And so the experience is just different and it hits all of us, depending on when you come out, that's going to determine a lot about where you are in your journey and how mature you are in that process. But again, going back to why we all need to be talking about it, we, you know, we inherited a lot of nonsense being in this community. We, you know, we, we inherit the otherness. We inherit being different. We inherit a lot of the emotional consequences, but we also inherit a family. Yeah. We inherit one another. And, and I really think that there's a lot of important work to be done for us to be there for one another and for all of our LGBT plus brethren who are finding themselves at different phases of their lives and need the support of their inherited family now. Yeah. And it's, I'm actually glad that you bring that up coming out at different ages because I actually, when I first met my husband, he had a roommate. And when he said he had a roommate, I thought it was going to be somebody our our age because we're only about a year apart. Mm. But no, come to find out, his his roommate was a, an older gentleman who had had come out later in life, and it's exactly like you said. It, it was kind of like he was a teenager again. He was making decisions that were probably not what you would expect <laughs> from a gentleman of his age. Yeah. But it it was because everything was so new to him, and he was just trying to experience life. And and so I yeah. can completely understand what you're talking about because in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking about this, you know, this gentleman who, you know, clearly was going through the same thing. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, coming out is, is really, really difficult. At least it was for me. I, I so I'll, I'll speak for yeah. myself. For, for me, it, it was really, really difficult. I would absolutely do it again. Right. It, it was really difficult, but absolutely worth it. And the work that I'm doing now is about the second coming out, you know, the, the, the chance we get to find out who we are when we realize that our sexuality isn't the most interesting part of us. When, when I came out, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm part of this new community all these new friends. And I, I mean, I doubled down on the gayness. I was, I was mayor of Gayville in Austin. <laughs> I was founder of the Pride Foundation and I was president of the Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, and I was at every function, and every I was at everything. I, I totally dived into it, and I allow my sexuality to to allow me to ignore again the emotional consequences and the trauma that I had grown up in. It was a way for me to mask everything that I had experienced and was pushing underneath the surface that I didn't want to deal with. And so this whole idea of the second coming out that I'm doing is about re- coming to coming to the realization that 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 stuff needs processed. Yeah. That in order for us to truly be authentic in who we are, we have to deal with all of it, not just that one part of us. So I'm I'm pretty passionate about that work. Yeah, and it certainly is different for everybody. Kind of like I said early on, the the experience that I had is, is going to be different than, you know, some of the younger members of the. Yep. And I'm jealous and I hate them. I'll admit it. 
I'm jealous and I hate him. <laughs> You've got it so much easier. Well, so it depends on family. Yeah, it does. It yeah, still depends 100%. on family. But here's the flip side of that coin. And I, I think it's, I always bring this up and I'm, I'm making a point to continue to bring this up because I think it's so important. The community now is tone deaf to how coming out in society is viewed um, in reality. So when I was younger, when you were younger, coming out was more dangerous. So you were more cautious. Yeah. Physically dangerous. Physically dangerous. You could get murdered. Yeah. And in fact, when I when I was first coming out, my mom said, I don't want that life for you. And that really upset me because I thought she was saying she didn't want me to be gay. And she, we ended up going to therapy to talk through this. She said, no, I don't want you to have to go through all the BS that comes with that. I don't care about that part. I want you to be safe. And I don't want you to have to deal with all the other baggage that comes with coming out or being gay. Yeah. And the, yeah. I think the issue that we run into now is it, being gay and, and being out is more acceptable in society. But the younger generation is failing to recognize that you kind of still have to have a little bit of, I don't want to say taste or self-awareness of how you are fitting into society and presenting yourself in a way as to not completely just piss everybody off. I'm so intrigued that you said that. That that's completely surprising me, I because I feel the exact same way, but I don't think. I mean, I think it takes a lot of courage to say it's it, hard. Is, is it's, and, and it's hard to articulate something like that without pissing everybody that's younger off. But the reality is, yeah, is we I'm just ha we have off. to have <laughs> we <laughs> we have to have some self awareness because you know if if we. Or if we're yelling at everybody in the world saying, you know, you're a bigot, but we only account for 7.1 or 7.2% of the, the U.S. population, which is the statistic I keep quoting from the Gallup, recent Gallup poll about LGBT identity. If we only account for 7.2%, it's not even 10% as a whole community. And then the different subsections are even smaller percentages. We, we can't afford to be I mean, we can be angry at everybody, but we can't expect them to like us if if we're rubbing things in their face and yelling at them, you know, just like we can't be expected to like them if they're doing the same to us. So I think there just needs to be more tact overall. There needs to be more grace. That, yeah. Thank you. I think all around. Well said. We need to be, there needs to be a whole lot more grace. You know, I'm, I'll share this. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. Ooh. I grandma is I think 86 or 87 years old. And so I'm on the phone with her one day and we're talking and she says, you know, I, I, you, I'm really glad that you're happy, even though I don't agree with your lifestyle. And in the next breath, she goes, well, tell Pasha, my husband that I love him and I, I miss him. <laughs> How does this, like, this does not compute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's hard. And I think, I think to myself for a second, like, I have a choice here, right? Like, I can get really angry and be like, you old bigot, you know? <laughs> or I can realize she is 87 yeah. years old and doing the best that she can do. And she's having conversation with me and we're talking about it. 
and I can offer her. She is clearly offering me grace by loving my husband and I can show her that same grace. I, I just think that that's so, so critically important. And I completely agree with, with, with what you said about that. There, there is a lot of anger. And the anger that I'm talking about is, is that anger that we have with the upbringing and the family and, and our situation. I think the societal anger could use a whole lot more grace. Yep. We don't have to agree with everybody in order to get <laughs> no. along. You know, we live in a we live in a big country and a big place. And I guess my problem comes, and, and we do this to ourselves. Like our community, we sort of eat our young. Mm-hmm. Sorry to say it, but our we we eat our young. We we don't often extend a whole lot of grace to one another. I don't. I think as long as somebody is trying, we should extend the grace. And I certainly don't think we should demonize them. And I think that that is typically what we do to anybody that even questions or is curious about issues that come up in our community. Mm-hmm. Instead of answering the question, we immediately demonize them. And the demonization for me is what is toxic. And I have this fantasy that we, as a community, mature to the point that we no longer feel the need to do that and can feel assured and self-confident enough in ourselves as a community and who we are to have the conversation without it feeling like a threat to us. And I get the feeling of it being a threat. I get that. Yeah. But I do hope that we can all advance together. We need civility. So I, I, absolutely. It's a great agree. word. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of so that. much aggression and it's just people's main goal is slandering each other so that they can get the higher ground even though it's a muddy mm-hmm. hill and you're just going to slip right down it again absolutely higher ground or more clicks or more views <laughs> yep which is a whole other a whole other thing but that with what you're saying hello with the civility there when there's a monet, a monetary reason to not be you know that's another issue we have to Agreed. address beyond our community yeah well, I- my concern in general, and, and Helen might be able to speak to this more more than even I can, because Helen teaches in a middle school. Middle school? High school? Middle, middle school. school. <laughs> okay, I was right the first time. I thought I was right. That's why I'm but, tired all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually talking to my brother about this this week, in fact. Because I, I have nieces. And I, my comment to him was, actually his comment to me, was that he wasn't sure how the world will be in a few years because it seems like the younger generations have been so polarized and will only accept their way or the highway that the concept of compromise has kind of slowly faded into the background. Yeah. So what is it going to be like when nobody's willing to compromise and it's all polarized? Uh, yeah. I do have to see it at the middle school level. There will always be that polarization because everyone's coming into themselves and kind of starting to find out that stuff. And, you know, obviously nowadays they're able to be a lot more opinionated and strong willed, but yeah, there's just these lines between the people and like these students in the same grade, same classes, like they have, they, they just can't even be civil around each other. 
They can't. Mm. How are you going to survive? How are you going to, how is this going to affect our future and your future? How are you going to be when you're an adult? Well, you're going to be like Marjorie Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there's some kids, I mean, there's some yeah. kids who like one day they'll be like the greatest ally. The next day they're the bully. And it's mm. just this, it, and it depends. It, it, I don't even know where they're getting some of the rhetoric from because like you'll hear about their parents and their parents will be like, they aren't like this at home sometimes. I think what is sad about that is you, I, I think, I don't know, as, as someone outside of the education system commenting <laughs> on it, I'm like, that's kind of what you would expect for a middle schooler, right? Like yeah. that's sort of, they're confused all the time. Sure. The trouble is, is that we have people running our country that are behaving like middle schoolers yeah. and that's what is dangerous. And, and for me, I, I think I'm a proud liberal, liberal Democrat. But I think where my party misses the boat is on education and doubling down on teaching kids emotional intelligence and doubling down on teaching kids civics and civility and life skills. And what scares me about where we're going to be in a few years is that the right absolutely understands that education is the key to the future. That's why they are attacking what we're seeing in, in Florida yeah. and what, what we're seeing around the country. <laughs> they understand that that is the future and they're starting there. And I feel like my party, the Democrats, are sleeping on that issue and not playing offense as hard as they should be. Or the future is going to be very, very bleak for people like you. Us. You yeah. rarely ever hear about educational advancements being done. Like mm. I, I, I rarely ever hear about things being brought in that are newer than they were when I went through the school system. Like, yeah, some mm. of the things that are taught are different, but it's like there's no because the world has changed a lot in ten years. There's not a lot of but innovation. The education, what was that, James? There's not a lot of innovation. Yeah, the school systems haven't changed in 10 years. I remember subbing I have to- last year, I subbed in the district I went through, and they were still using the same exact textbooks. Like, I looked through some of the textbooks and saw classmates' na- names of mine. Like, I had gone to school with kids that had, <laughs> were in these, like, had signed these textbooks. <laughs> and they were old at that point. Like, they were from, like, 2005 when we had them and it's just like obviously it's gonna be kind of boring because some of the stories aren't they're old stories i'm thinking specifically of like english textbooks because those are the textbooks Mm -hmm. that typically are still used because math half the time doesn't use textbooks anymore which is a nice thing Mm -hmm. i'm glad they kind of have a little bit more free form in math i'm hella i would be really curious about i have this theory about that and I'm, I'm wondering what your take on it would be. I think, I, I wonder if we had more of a national mission, a national purpose, if that might update the innovation. We don't have a space race, right? True. Like there's nothing that we're like, there's no one that we're fighting. Like everybody can rally yeah. around, you know? And I think if, if we had like a national mission, then everything underneath could innovate toward that thing. And unfortunately, yeah. Well, that national mission, I don't know what your idea about that would be. Political parties together 
And mm-hmm. so, like, the country felt more united. And so people, like, when there's unity, there's uh, advancement, in my opinion. Like, But when yeah. you're all bickering over the little things, the bigger things aren't going to really happen. Well, when there's no bigger thing, all that's left is the little things to exactly. come at one another with. But then there's, once you start picking at those little things, it makes it harder for a bigger thing to be agreed upon. Because there are yeah. things that we could make our bigger mission, like safer schools. Mm-hmm. Like, even in my state, because I live in Michigan, so we got a fairly decent state. People call us the anti-Florida. Uh, I still that's a jab am kind of like nervous I wear that day. like a badge. Yeah, nervous, th- like, that, that's a jab at me because today? I live in Florida. Well, I know, it is a little bit. But that, I've seen that in like actual news articles. Um, <laughs> like every day I'm like, is there going to be a school shooting that I'm going to have to deal with? Yeah. Like, am I going to have to like protect a group of kids in a classroom? And like, and then there, well, obviously to get back on track, uh, obviously like we have so, so many kids that are expressing themselves nowadays and, but then there's the kids putting them down, which kind of brings that fear of what, how might this kid react? But mm-hmm. I remember you mentioned uh, us eating our young. And that literally, I had to sit there and just realize what I was... T- I never did anything to this kid directly. But he's very, like, ADHD and very flamboyant. My thought was, I realized the reason why it kind of bugged me with how like flamboyant he is is because it's like... Because even when I was younger, I, w- I didn't come out till late high school either. I didn't know what gay was till high school. Because I was, I was also the church, tw- two church services every Sunday. You know, uh, I was like, if this, if the kid acts like this, he's just going to get bullied, and he he needs to like suppress it. He needs to hide it until he's old. And I'm like, yeah. no, he needs like I sat. Once you said all that stuff, I realized I need to just sit back and just help him and not hinder like i need mm. to you know be the the visual i have in my mind right now is like a pride parade and i, I need to be one of the people holding the haters back mm. like letting him express himself and we definitely need to make sure kids are supported to be able to express themselves that was a lot said and i ramble a little bit <laughs> <laughs> No, I thought it was beautifully. I mean, I I thought that was really beautiful. I'm just thinking, I don't think it's just, I don't think that's just you. And I don't think that's just with kids, but I think that there are people of all ages that, that need those of us that have been around for a minute to protect them and to help them going back to what we were talking about, people coming out at all different phases and ages of their lives. And I, I, I just, I wish that we could adopt what you just said as more of a mindset because Ultimately, I think, I think deep down we know this, but we don't like to admit it. But when we see the flamboyant kid and they trigger us in some way, we're really looking in the mirror. Yeah. Like when we see that kid, we're looking in the mirror. And I wish we could remember that instead of demonizing them or, or asking them to tone it down or, or whatever. But, but be what you're talking about. I think that was really beautifully yeah. said. Because it- I wish somebody had done that for me. You know, when I was running the, when I started the pride organization in Austin, 
I was in my late twenties when I did that. Uh, and I had only been out for, I came out when I was 22. So I hadn't been out for that long. And here I am mayor of Gayville. And that's a very public spotlight. You're in the paper, you're, it's, you're meeting with city council. Like you're, it's a very political and public job and I'm a baby gay. And I made a whole lot of mistakes and I pissed off a whole lot of people. And there were definitely some people in the community that took me under their wing and tried to help me, but there were a whole lot more writing newspaper articles about me and yeah. what a mess I was and writing nasty things about me. You know, back then it was in the newspaper. Um, and there were a few blogs back then. I can't imagine had there been social media. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think. You know, we've always we've all been in that spot, right? Where we're not quite ready, and yet here we are in in the role in the moment. I w- and I think there's a lot of room for grace and compassion for our own. And looking back, I didn't really fully because com- my type of coming out has been stages. Mm. Like I came out to a couple people in high school, and then couple friends in college and it wasn't until I think it was last year I made a Facebook post just being like you know y'all I can't keep kind of tiptoeing around this deal with it if you have questions have fun with those questions I might or might not answer them like it -hmm. is what it is and you know a lot of the things you've been saying have definitely resonated with me like your grandma because my grandma, very, I, it's it's eerie. <laughs> um, because like when I was younger, she left a church because they started accepting gay people at that church. But now now I'm older, and she, we I kind we've kind of at this point where I'm like, you know, she's older. She's only in her seventies or something. But I'm like, you know, as long as she's like we're happy being around each other, I'm happy with that. So I don't want to lose her, kind of thing. And I hope she doesn't yeah. want to lose me either. Yeah. We just kind of, we still kind of technically tiptoe around it, but like, you know, every once in a while she'll kind of say something that like, affirms like what I've said and my, our relationship and whatnot. And so. That's great. You know, people, one of the questions that I get asked a lot, because I haven't spoken to my dad in I think 13 years. And I, sometimes folks in these interviews will say, well, you know, how do you know when to cut somebody off? When do you know when to cut somebody out of your life? And it's like the hardest thing in the world. And where I landed was, you know, my mom, she still says a lot of things that I wish she didn't say, or she says the wrong way, but I'm always able, I'm always able to have a conversation with her about it and come to an understanding. It's like, I've got a willing dance partner. And as long as she's willing to dance with me, I'll keep dancing with her. My dad, on the other hand, like he's had my phone number all these years. My phone number hasn't changed. He's, he's never made an effort. If I don't have a willing dance partner, you're telling me everything that I need to know about you and this relationship. And so that in my mind is how I've, I've come to that. Like with my grandma and with my mom, it's like, if you'll dance with me, even if you're going to step on my toes every once in a while, and I'm going to step on your toes every once in a while, let's keep dancing. Yeah. But if you're not willing, eh, see you later. I'm better as, off without as you. As they say, it takes two to tango. Exactly. 
Typically not in this sense, but exactly. well, it's it's certainly that fits. an ex- experience to try to to find that common ground with family because, like, my dad's side of the family is, is is very very religious. Most of them are very devout Catholics. And recently, when my my grandmother was in hospice and was about to pass away, I was very surprised. They they surprised me when you talk about willing dance partner. But one of my aunts asked me about my husband's name spelling so that he could be put in the obituary, which to me was very surprising. You know, my, my mm-hmm. husband, I think, has spent maybe two hours around my dad's side of the family total combined with all people. And the fact that she went out of her way to make sure that there was some inclusion there meant a lot. So for me now I feel um, it's my obligation to take that a step further and make sure that that relationship continues. Um, Now, if it had gone other ways, you know, if they flat refused, then, you know, it is what it is. But so I I can certainly relate to having a a willing dance partner that makes a world of difference. Is somebody willing to meet you at least halfway? Speaking of my mom's side of the family is one of the reasons I was able to like make those steps. And like my one aunt and uncle that I have in mind have literally called my parents stupid at times to me for making it so difficult. Like they're one of the reasons mm-hmm. I was able to make that Facebook post because they gave that affirmation. My dad said the family, he was the only child. I don't know like anyone on his side. They don't make a lot of efforts to know my family or me. And, you know, I'm fine with that. They don't want to know say us. Say love you? Yeah, say love you. Yeah. That's actually still a tattoo I want to get. <laughs> say love you has been a tattoo I've wanted to get since high school. The um, ever since I learned what it meant, it has resonated with me. In the sense that it, it, it's life. That's life. Like, it is what it is. Mm. Um, and I've always tried to keep that in mind because you know things happen you can't let them stab you deep yeah you gotta i love that and of course i have to quote a drag queen because i do that almost every episode water off a duck's back jinx monsoon jinx monsoon just you know you can't let it penetrate your feathers like i think kind of what she said is you gotta Absorb what you need to, and then let the rest run off of you. And that's something I think that also needs to be taught to people. So yeah. A lot of people take things way too personally. When a lot of yeah. times, the, like I, I, this is of course I'm going to anecdote school again. Like I'll notice kids are arguing and stuff, and they're saying these really mean things, but it's probably they just don't really know what it means. Like they don't understand ramifications and whatnot. Yeah. They don't have context for it. Well, half half the adults in the world don't understand what they're saying either. Exactly. But as <laughs> as, as anecdoting Mar- Marjorie school. Taylor Green. <laughs> mm. What's her? You know, I, Marjorie Toad Marge. I'm teaching. Okay. No. Oh. <laughs> Mar- She's Marjorie Toad Green. Jane. James, what I loved about what you were saying was about your family and the, and the obituaries is that she took a risk. <laughs> with you. And I think that's such an important part of any relationship is that we're, we're willing to take risk 
And I think there's a tendency, one of the things we talked about a lot at the, at the forum in the second coming out is, you know, thinking, being rehearsing the future and we're wrong like 99% of the time. And it's, it's worth thinking about being willing to take more risk and giving other people the opportunity to surprise us. And it can lead to really beautiful things like what happened with your family. And now you're going to turn around and take another risk with them and they'll take another risk with you. And that's, that's how relationships sustain and get built. And that's really beautiful. And I'm really excited about that for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And it also helps sometimes to, to have, you know, an advocate of sorts, right. Or an ally. Mm-hmm. Cause she didn't have to do that. And, and yeah. she's also been, it's really funny because I'm the third. So my, my first name is James, but middle name is Bennett. My grandfather went by James. My dad goes by Jim. And I used to go by Ben when I was a kid, but I didn't really want to carry the name Ben into adulthood. For some reason, it just bothered me to me. It's always felt like a weird name. So I've chosen and as an adult to go by James, but all of my close family still calls me Ben. And the same aunt has been emphatic with everybody to say he has made it clear that he wants to go by James, call him James. And she would mm. yell at my dad when he, when he would call me Ben. But I, I, I thought it was her. silly because I'm kind of, I'm used to it. I I can switch. I'm ambidextric. I'm not going to be able to say that Ambidextrous word. with your name. Yeah. I, I don't know why I cannot get that word out of my mouth, but I know it's not going to happen with the way my tongue's moving. But yeah, I, uh, you know, for me, it, it doesn't matter. You know, it is what it is. Um, but she was very emphatic about that. And I just thought it was very, very funny. That's got to feel good. Oh, though. it does. I mean, it, it, funny you have a little like, warrior in your corner. Yeah. That feels great. Everybody needs that. I love that. Yeah, it feels great. And it makes me feel more comfortable in being around that side of the family because I at least have one advocate. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody that's going to yeah. kind of push for my well-being. Like, as I said earlier, when I first came out, came out that it was my aunt and uncle who made me able to actually go visit my grandma because they moved up there. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can go there and be a little bit more myself. So as you said earlier on Chad about the chameleon and the masking and everything, I've done that. I still kind of do it to be around my parents. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have to. I remember Mm -hmm. I have a question. Hello. Oh, what? How can you be a chameleon with the hair and the nails and the... Well, the nails aren't a common thing. This is recent. <laughs> this is recent. And actually, I have a story about that, too. Because, <laughs> um, like, a week after I got these, my dad texts us, who wants to meet up for dinner? And he's the one that's, like, he kind of tries to be accepting, but he's also, like, he was also the one that used to tell me to speak differently, walk differently, I wouldn't come off as gay and, and, you know, dress differently. Like you can't wear that. You can't wear that. That's a woman, you know, all this stuff. And I, so I was like, you know, I'd actually, I I had this weird urge because typically I just say no, because I don't even want to deal with them. And then they complain about how I never visit and whatnot. And I just was like, you know what? I kind of want to go have dinner. It's been a while. So I just sent my dad a picture of my nails. He never responded to the text, but we went to dinner and he just, this actually made me happy. He didn't, even like comment on them a single time. And did you want him to? No, I didn't want him to. 
Like mm. he didn't seem to have any issues, and like we are actually able to have this good, like decent length dinner as a family that we haven't had. I felt in a while. Mm. So a lot of times, like if we eat at their house, it ends up in like an argument or something because you know mm. we got a lot of heat in our blood, and well, so we argue. Being in a public place has a way of tampering. That, that hence why I was also a little eager for public place. Also, the house they live in is the one I grew up in and had all that stuff said to me because he was never like abusive physically, but looking back there was definitely like emotional shit. How do you deal with the guilt? How do you deal with the guilt about, you know, you never come home, you never come see us. Like, how how do you process that? Uh, Typically (laughs) probably not well. Um, I tell them, why don't you ever Mm. come see me? Like Mm. Because they never come over to my place. They never... They, they'll sometimes come out to my town and be like, let's get dinner and stuff. But, like, it's all on them. Like, they are, they always have to be in control. Uh, I tend... I don't think I ever... Honestly, we probably all need therapy in my family. Um, and none of us are getting it. It could um, <laughs> Talk to um, emotions. I just have anxiety, and I have anxiety about finding a therapist. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. Every once in a while, we'll just kind of argue, and I think a lot of it just eventually just gets brushed under the rug. And now we just have a mound under the rug of that we trip over every once in a while. That's the best I can. Yeah, we don't. I don't know. I think my mom kind of understands because I think I've vented to her in a very <clears throat> hello way of she pissed me off and I yelled it at her uh, my family we need therapy I'll just put that out there I get that that all resonates I, I hope you do get a chance to work those things out with your family because it does it is always a relief when you're able to at least get to a point where maybe there's some compromise or at least some understanding and, and everything's out on the table and, and, you know, kind of where everything stands. Yeah. I think my dad at this point has realized that there's no point in fighting me over like my well, hair and shit. You're an adult. <laughs> I pay for it. They used to try to use that argument that they paid for my haircut. So that a voice in what happened. But that's an important point, you know, because when, especially, I know you mentioned young people listening to this, you know, it, that is a hard spot to be in when, when somebody else is footing the bill, it is, there is a little bit of sense of obligation to follow the rules and follow what they expect when they're, when they're footing the bill. So I don't think that that's not an important thing that you said, Hella. that's a, that's a real emotion that, and a real circumstance that a lot of people have to deal with for a long time. Yeah, and it comes down to you just need to realize that you are your own human being. Mm-hmm. And yep, yeah, and it's it's more challenging to Chad's point. It's it's more challenging for for younger individuals, especially people that are, you know aren't self self reliant, self sustaining. You know, if you don't have your own source of income and you're relying on a parent to pay for haircuts or wardrobe, that definitely brings about more challenges. Certainly those things are, you know, things that help you express yourself. I would also 
put in there that, you know, your hair doesn't define who you are. I know some people that that can be a touchy subject, but it, it you know, it doesn't define who you are. You can be who you are without purple hair. <laughs> I like my purple hair though. I do like your purple. That's a good color. I know. I, my hair is something that once I, I think the reason you, what you just said, I'm one of those people. My hair is like, I, I used to tell people, I might seem like I'm off my rocker, but the time you'll know I'm really off my rocker is when I just suddenly chop my hair off. <laughs> because, like, this is something that I fought for to get this. And um, it was, like, the first thing I actually had, like, my own control over. And mm. So this is, like, my baby. <laughs> I know it's weird to say. My cat's my baby now. I care about my hair a little less that now. Makes a lot of sense. Once I got, like, a child. That makes a lot James of sense. Knows. I'm the crazy cat lady, by the way. <laughs> As Very James called so. me at the beginning of the episode. Well, Chad, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? I, I don't. I just want to encourage folks to uh, get a copy of the book. It's free. If you can, come to the Second Coming Out program. and I'd love to see you there. But otherwise, I'm good. I think we've run pretty late on time, but I know, Hella, you wanted to bring up, I think, two things real quick. So the very first thing I'd like to mention is that it's Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. I'm trying to word it very carefully, and it's not happening. Give I like to make sure that people know about them. Yep. Acknowledged. Thank you. I like to give them their acknowledgement and say that, obviously, they're always important. They're not important just this month. They're important all year round. Um, but... It's, I also like these months because it brings it to the attention of more people. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I'll have you post that link too. Yeah, I'll, I'll include that in the as podcast. Well, just as, because as it, a, it links to lots of events and articles about Asian Pacific American heritage. And um, I just know that. I'm pretty sure they're, they're one of those smaller minorities and they don't often don't get a voice. And then you also had brought up, and I, I, I think this is important to, yeah, it wasn't to, just this singular event. It's this whole action that they're doing in uh, yeah. with Zoe Zephyr. I think they're a representative in. Yes. They, they well, they, were a representative in, in the state's House of Representatives, but they were barred. Barred, correct. From what I've heard, though, they've been working outside of that. Like, they're still like a representative. They just can't enter the house. So they've been working from a bench in like the lobby. And there's been drama with that bench with ladies sitting there and taking their seats so she couldn't work. And like one of those ladies was the mother of one of the people that had Zoe Bard. This was like a lot of, you know, just stupid drama. My concern, um, and it's it's the concern that I have for a lot of the things that are going on, is it, everything's becoming so polarized. But this is supposed to be a democracy, and we elect representatives to represent us. And e even, you know, it's, it's a catch-22. There are some representatives that are in the U.S. House of Representatives that have clearly 
cross some ethics lines, Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the usual suspects. Um, and I would argue that there are, are probably some liberal rep- representatives that have crossed some similar lines in that legislative body. We do not think about those, but why are we thinking that it's okay to expel representatives at the state level? Yeah. Just to point out, the reason she got barred is because she said lawmakers, she said something about lawmakers having, when they pray, see the blood on their hands for restricting medical care to transgender youth. Yeah. That's why she got barred is because of some simple phrase that when much worse has been said in those houses of government. Yeah, they were pointing out that there's a potential correlation between the actions of the legislature and possible harm that will come, actual harm that does come to trans individuals in that state. Suicide rates skyrocket in transgender youth when they don't get medical care, affirmation care. And because there's a lot of misinformation out about this, gender-affirming care in trans youth usually never. Uh, I'm sure that there are some remote cases that it does happen, but usually never involve surgery. It's Uh, typically hormone blockers, puberty blockers. And that would be at the later end of that treatment. And those are also... Oops, sorry to interrupt, but those are also reversible. Yes. Yeah, that is a reversible procedure or medication, but usually what gender-affirming care involves is counseling uh, to address Mm -hmm. gender dysphoria and to talk through feelings in in their own body and and to assess whether or not they're really experiencing gender dysphoria or if they might be having other forms of depression or anxiety or, you know, social, social issues and, and trying to make sure that they thrive in their own skin. And, and most, you know, most of what happens in that time is using a different name or, or pronouns to affirm that, that gender identity before exploring surgery, you know, changing things like hair and clothing, things that aren't permanent. So but it's it's all very very concerning and i know that there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion in the general public about um trans individuals and i think there's a lot of animosity um the pendulum is swinging <laughs> i i fear that our community didn't do ourselves any favors by having so much animosity towards others and expecting them to completely get on board a hundred percent or hit the highway and, and be excommunicated. Um, so I think unfortunately some of this and this, I promise you, this is not victim blaming some, somebody might label it that way, but some of this is our own actions coming back to bite us in the ass. And it's unfortunate, but hopefully we're able to work through those, those issues. I think to Chad's point earlier, compassion is going to be a, a key part in all of that you know, showing compassion to others and, and trying to have an open dialogue without the animosity. You had mentioned my, my Marjorie Taylor Greene. Did, did you have any thoughts on, on this particular subject, the, what's going on? And 
I feel like I'm in line with with the two of you. I think when someone is a duly elected representative, you you don't silence their voice because their voice doesn't align with your ideology. She's not. They are not just there representing themselves. They are representing, I believe, in this case, some. You know, I don't. I, I'm not going to quote a number, but representing thousands of, of people that elected her to that spot they should be a part of the conversation, even if you don't like what they are saying. Yeah. Like to your point, James, God knows we have to hear what, what the other side has to say. And we just sit there and listen. We don't try to excommunicate them from their jobs and put their, you know, this is their, this is their job. It is. It, and, and I know with the thing in Nashville in Tennessee, when they try to get what they did uh, expel the two lawmakers there, you know, it, it puts their health, insurance at risk. It puts their livelihood at risk. And and those people too represent thousands of voices that should be represented in the state legislatures. And it's a, and I think that the reason that the state legislatures try to do it is because they think that they're not going to get the attention. Yeah. And that is the one thing that our, our side is doing well. Just because you are at a state legislature, you're the dog catcher. When you silence elected representatives' voices, we should all hear about it and hold those people to account. Yeah, and there's a difference between, I certainly believe that speech can be harmful, if not as harmful as actions in some cases. However, there is a difference between trying to hold somebody to account for actions and and coordinating things that are highly illegal and removing somebody's ability to represent their constituents because of something they said. Mm. Cause I, I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, the Democrats tried to impeach Donald Trump or, you know, impeach Donald Trump twice and he didn't get convicted because the, the Republicans had the Senate. There were specific actions behind that, that carried legal ramifications if he were not the president of the United States would be severe. So. Well, we're going to see, right. We're going to see if the special special counsel decides that if he wants to bring charges against Trump for saying, we're all going to march to the Capitol, right. He didn't go, but he certainly encouraged it. And we're going to see if those words carry consequences for what followed using insightful language. We're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. I hope there's a turnaround. I, I, I'm, I'm always ever hopeful, ever positive. I, I'm always wishing for a turnaround. Always wishing for that one day that, and you know, my, the idea like would be that one day there's just a change, but I know that's going to take a lot of actual work and it's not going to be a sudden snap. Well, I'm always hoping for compromise. I, I wish I, I feel like despite despite labels of Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, I think most people um, would would probably be comfortable with a more moderate stance on a national level, at least a, a more moderate approach. Yeah. And, and I, I would probably classify myself as as very, you know, very in line with conservative ideals. I don't like big government. I don't think government should be involved in a lot of things. I think those things should happen on a more local level. You know, so I'm the odd man out as a, as a gay man (laughs) in that regard. If, 
I don't think you're as odd out as you think. Well, I, I will say this. The Republicans are making it. I would normally vote Republican, but the Republicans are making it very hard for me to be associated with Republicans. And I'm not a huge fan of some of the things that Democrats do. I feel like Democrats, there's a lot of spending that I don't agree with. I don't think government should should be involved in a lot of things that we're involved in. I think I think our our but yep. Democrat or Republican aside, I think our military budget is insane. It's incredulous. Incredulous is that the right word? It, it, the spending needs to be redirected or just stopped. Well, and recently, and not stop, but cut back. There was an interview with John Stewart, and I can't remember what this woman's position was in the in the military, but she was up there in the military a controller for the military, I believe. But there was a recent audit, and I think it was over a billion dollars is missing. Or billions of dollars are missing. Like, they can't they can't find it. And, you know, he's saying, why? Depsec of defense. <laughs> we have Definitely starving hits. children in our country, and you can't find over a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still having this budget a crisis and and her response and and I'm, i might even be tempted to play it in post but her response was just because we can't find it doesn't mean that there's fraud and he said well i personally believe that something is wrong and it it should be considered fraudulent if you cannot find you know this much money this much of my money or you know taxpayers dollars you cannot find them so for me that is disingenuous and fraudulent so I think a lot needs to change. But we're not going to well, solve yeah. world peace here. <laughs> no, we we're definitely... not. Old people, though, need to make room. That's that's something else that needs to happen. They and, need um, to be in told... my state, yeah. Diane Feinstein needs to retire. The old guard needs to move along and let young, new ideas come along and take on some leadership roles so that we can actually make changes as long as the old guard stays in their own, stays at their post. Those changes are going to be very, very difficult. They need to go live in their cabin on the lake and just relax. <laughs> Let other people handle shit for a little while. Yep. No. Well, anyway, okay. <laughs> thank you, Chad, for joining us. That's all we had. On thank you both. I appreciate you so much. Yeah. So make this sure is- Chad's links are in the description, and we'll we'll make sure to, to post your links. If you want to join in the conversation, you can join us at discord.gg/lgbtfam. We do this podcast recording every Saturday at seven p.m., and we'd love to have your voice as part of the conversation. If you're too afraid to get on camera, you can always just talk to us via the the voice chat or even the text chat while we're recording. Or if you don't want to be involved at that level, you can always submit topic ideas to us, something that you've seen going on locally or in your area or something you want to hear us talk about just out of the blue. Feel free to, feel free to drop that in. But until next time, guys, 